heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 5 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey everybody, we are back. Welcome to Wine Crush and Season 5, Episode 1. We are excited for what this season is going to bring for us this year. And we are starting off with who we were supposed to finish off for Season 4. So in our downtown beautiful McMinnville studio is David Pott with Sunbreak Wines. And we have Sam Para with Para Wine Company. And we are going to start with David today. Welcome, David. Thank you for coming back. Hello. Um, thank you. Yes. Yeah. I am Pleasure so, to be here. I am so excited to have you here because you're a little bit of a twist, a little bit of a difference. You're not just wine. So we're going to get into a couple different things with you. But first, I really like to start with the story and kind of where your background started and how you found yourself in the wine industry and, and with what the other things that you're doing is. Yeah, well, thank you, Heidi. And it's just a pleasure to be here, especially with Sam, my good friend from Power Wine. That's just uh, just a pleasure. Yeah, I started just as a wine lover and a wine enthusiast forever. My family's French, so my dad's a professor. We'd spend every summer in France, in southern France. And I just have a lot of family that was really into wine. And that just kind of brought that passion for me when I was just really young and my wife and I just discovering amazing wines through my uncle and my aunts and a lot of other family members. And then we moved to Oregon in the 90s and found, you know, Oregon wine country and just started exploring, exploring. And just uh, about seven years ago, I had the chance to start a second career and, and really focus on winemaking I originally thought maybe a vineyard would be nice and maybe that's in the future. But right now it's a focus on winemaking and uh, just went from there. Yeah. So when we talk about the French background and that French, you know, that influence or whatever, what does that mean to you as far as, you know, the difference between the French looking at wine versus, you know, how we look at it in the States? Well, yeah, that's a good point. It was always something at all the family meals, like a celebration, but it was also part of just our daily life, great food and great wine. And then the celebratory part where the family reunions would always bring out some really special wines and champagnes. And then the other thing too is in the French culture and a lot of European cultures, we would start off with an aperitif wine. And so that has also piqued my interest in aperitif wines and ciders and uh, lighter style beverages that you would have before the meal, uh, during meal prep, you know, just with appetizers. There's a lot of, you know, the culture in France, not quite as exaggerated as in Spain, but, you know, you start dinner at 8 p.m., you start your appetizer course and your family time and and time with friends around six. And so you've got a a lot of in-between time for like fun little tidbits of food or tapas in Spain. And in France, it would be nice little hors d'oeuvres with that aperitif wine. So it's really thinking about all the different styles that come into 
into play with different styles of food and different parts of your food adventure through the evening. So, so there was, yeah, there was quite a bit of influence with that. Yeah. So before I forget how to pronounce it, what is aperitif wine? Because yeah, so, I'm not familiar with that that phrase. Yeah, there are a lot of different aperitif wines. So they tend to be wines that have been fortified and also infused with botanicals or other fruit. So in France, actually, port wine is is had as an aperitif wine, not after dinner, but before dinner. So it's been like a fortified wine that is a little sweet, but there's also a whole series and suite of uh, sweet wines that have been infused with all sorts of different botanicals. Um, another big favorite in France would be like pastis. So really heavy on the anise. You better define that one too before I ask you. Yeah, like aniseed or and ouzo in Greece. Um, yeah, there's a whole tradition in, in the Mediterranean for that style of aperitif wine. Yeah. But it's fun because as a winemaker, you know, you have the whole palette. And so I just started making aperitif that I'll be launching this year. And there's 17 or 19 different botanicals that you infuse into the wine. And then you fortify it, you sweeten it a little bit, and you, you've got all these different things at play. And so it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Don't spoil the secret for later because we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. <laughs> but I love the definition. And I really like to bring out the difference between European culture with wine and American culture with wine because there is a huge difference on how it's looked at and how it's utilized. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was always just a, a natural part of any meal, any pairing with good food and obviously with friends and good times as well. But it's also seen, you know, not as a product, but as something that's crafted locally. And, you know, the culture I see a lot in Europe is always, you know, emphasize your local foods and your local wines together. And yeah, that's definitely something that's that's very important. Did your upbringing or your experiences in France influence your move to Oregon? Well, it didn't. That was more of a work-related move to Oregon back in the 90s. But having said that, the biggest influence I had in wine when I was young was my uncle Christian and uh, my aunt Marie-Paul. And that's one of my wines is Marie-Paul is named after her. And they collected Pinot Noir and Champagne. And so whenever we'd visit with them or at family reunions, they would be the ones to really bring out all the great wines. And so right from the start, when I was like 18, 19, 20, I was introduced to just amazing Pinots and amazing Chardonnays and, and um, Champagne. And so when we moved to Oregon, I really didn't understand that Oregon was all about Pinot and Chardonnay and Pinot Gris. And so it was just like a dream come true. And we just had so much fun exploring, you know, all the great wines in Oregon and really fell in love with the Oregon wine culture. So it sounds like it's a little serendipitous how you ended up in Oregon and kind of Pinot country when that's where you started, you know, your love for wine in the beginning. Yes, it was just, uh, it was serendipity and it was, uh, it was just a beautiful time. And back in the day, you know, there weren't that many tasting rooms. So you would go to the the wine weekends, the open houses, and you'd meet all the winemakers. And it was just a great, great fun time to explore wine in Oregon. 
Well, let's uh, let's shift gears to the wine itself because we have that beautiful Pinot that you were talking about that was named after your aunt. So when it comes to stylings for your Oregon Pinot, you know, let's talk about that and, you know, where you're, you know, sourcing your grapes and just your whole, you know, ideology behind, you know, what you're making. Yeah. So I'm actually making uh, Pinot in five different ways. So for all the different palettes and all the different food pairings you could think of. So we uh, start off by making a white Pinot Noir called Nicolette. And then we made a rosé called Marie, and then three different styles of Pinot Noir. So that should cover just about anything you could ever want. I have a lot of fun with the Pinot Noir itself in making three different styles uh, from the same vineyard. And so right now I'm sourcing all of my grapes from the Cortel Rose Vineyard, which is a beautiful organically farmed vineyard right across from Brooks Estate in the Yola Amity Hills. And they have six different blocks, six different clones. And I finally have gotten uh, large enough now as a winemaker that I can source from all six of those clones and get the full variety of the vineyard. And actually in 2021, I'll be the first winemaker to fully represent that vineyard with all six clones in my bottlings, which is going to be super fun. Uh, the 2019s that are currently available, I was able to get five different clones into those uh, wines. So first, as a winemaker, you know, we have all these different choices to make. And I worked with some winemakers when I was interning that would just do destemmed fermentations, just using the berries. Uh, so a little bit more fruit forward that way, maybe. And then some other winemakers that would include some whole cluster and so that means including the stems, you get some herbaceous and spice notes that are a little different, uh, maybe some additional tannins. And then finally, I, I was an assistant winemaker for Milan wines, and uh, Ben uses 100% whole cluster all the time. So right when I started, I just thought, well, I'll just just do all three and see which one I like. And so the Marie Paul has a little bit of both. The Colette would be 100% destemmed, and the Ariane is 100% whole cluster. And as I've kind of evolved over the last four years, I, I really am enjoying all three. And it's really fun for, I think, all my clients, um, the feedback that I get just exploring like three different expressions from the same vineyard is just a lot of fun. 100% whole cluster is not easy to do. There aren't very many wineries that do that. But some of the best Burgundy Pinots, maybe the most fabled wine in the world from uh, DRC, Domaine Romane Conti, is 100% whole cluster or, or mostly so on most vintages. And you know, it's the most fabled wine in the world. And so you've got to, as a winemaker, you've got to give that a try. You just can't let that go. Um, it takes a little bit longer for it to evolve and uh, really open up, but it's really rewarding because you get that mix of spice and herb with the fruit and it kind of comes and goes and it changes over time. Uh, and the more you cellar it, the better you're going to be with that and all the mixes that you get. And then the Colette on the other side, 100% destemmed, where it might be a little bit more enjoyable when it's young because it's just, you know, more fruity, just right up front and delicious uh, right in the first and second and third year. And then Marie Paul was always designed to be a blend of those two and kind of the best of both worlds. 
and you know see how that plays out and it to me it kind of brings you know my idea with that one would is it would bring more complexity and length and kind of the best of both of those so so it's just fun to play with all three of those and see which one you like best and uh, which food you like best with it and uh, what's your mood and what how does that influence which one you like when we talk about vintage, the vintage is always changing the wine and how it tastes and how it acts and everything like that. Does it do the same thing with the three varietals as far as like, you know, what you may like in 2019 isn't really what you're liking in 20 because of the difference of expressions and the weather and whatever it else happened that year? Yeah, that's a really good question because actually, yes, totally. There's this whole thing about if you're going to use the stems and the whole cluster so it's a little bit more complicated than just looking at berry ripeness. You're also having to look at stem ripeness. And 2019 is a really good example because that was one of our kind of cool vintages. It started cooling off in mid-September and we started getting rain and drizzle. Um, and the grapes just didn't ripen as much as they did in 18 or some of the previous hotter vintages. So yeah, I made a little bit less whole cluster that year. So there's less Ariane, less Marley Paul, and a lot more Colette, a lot more destemmed. So, but this year, 2021, beautiful vintage, and I was able to do everything proportionally, do half the grapes whole cluster, half destemmed. So it'll it'll be a lot of fun for me when we start doing our assemblage, you know, doing all of our blending together and deciding how much to make of each of the three. So that'll be a lot of fun. I want to give a little bit of an homage to the names of your wines. Oh, because thank I you. Because I know that you had said that Marie Paul is, is one of your aunts, but let's talk about the other ones that you have yes. because you can't leave them out. That's right. And I, I have seven aunts and I try to tell them I, I didn't try to pick all my favorites because I only have three that I could use on the Pinot's. But, you know, you start looking at names and trademark issues and which ones work in English and in French. But yeah, Mali Paul, we've talked about and super big influence. Uh, Colette and Ariane are my mom's sisters. And my mom was from the Riviera. Uh, she grew up in Cannes, which you may have heard of. Beautiful spot. And so those, both of those aunts were just intelligent, beautiful, elegant, just kind of what you think of in terms of French chic. And Colette was was also a, just a pure intellectual too. She was a, a, a French literature professor. And then, but all of my aunts and my grandmothers as well were just amazing, you know, cook from scratch cooks. And the other thing in part of French culture, when, you know, all, all the kids are brought in as labor for in, in the, into the kitchen for every big meal. And so you end up spending a lot of time with your grandmother, your mom, your aunts, you know, big family reunions, helping out in the kitchen. And so all of them were just huge influences to my love of food and wine. It's a real honor for me to make that homage to the family and to them in particular. Well, thank you for so, that explanation. Yeah. Well, I know my glass needs refilled, and I'm thinking there's some empty glasses around the table. So we're going to take a quick wine break, pretty much, and okay. we'll come right back. Okay. 
We are back, and I am hoping that you've refilled your glass with as high quality of wine as we are drinking today. We are back with David Pott with Sunbreak Wines, and we left off talking about wine, and we're going to start talking about more wine. So let's shift from, actually, no, let's not shift from Pinot, because we didn't talk about the white Pinot, and we didn't talk about the rosé. And white Pinot, you don't see very often, and people, some, assume it's a white grape. It's a different varietal, and it's it's really just a different style. That's right. Yeah. You know, Pinot Noir is actually used in Champagne, right? It's one of the three grapes with Chardonnay and and, uh, Petit Meunier. So I thought it'd be a lot of fun to play around with that. And in in French, they call it Blanc de Noir, you know, white of black. So making a white wine from a red grape or a black grape. So we just uh, picked the grapes super early and are really striving for a super aromatic, citrus, floral, just really juicy, beautiful white wine. And so we're picking it pretty early. So it's got great acidity and just just a delicious, refreshing white style. And then the rosé we make, the Marie rosé, we give it a fair amount of skin contact so that it has really good color has some of the red, you know, kind of tannins and other phenolics that you might associate with red, but still kind of brings that really nice fruit, strawberry, really nice zingy, bright notes that you expect in a rosé, but also has a little bit more body to handle foods um, that are a little bit richer as well. So yeah, those kind of round out the, the Pinot Noirs that we make. Unfortunately, we did not get the white Pinot and the rosé this time, but we drank, I don't know how many bottles of that we drank last time you were here. So That's right. It, it's, we've had it. It's beautiful. It's yummy and highly recommend it. I want to shift from wine into vermouth. Okay, but before oh, yes. we do that, I, I did want to, I forgot to say one thing about the red wines. We don't add sulfur to our red wines. And so it's a little bit different and something unique out on the marketplace. It's super hard to do, but to make a clean red wine with no sulfites added, I really thought it'd be important because to me, it really highlights the fresh notes and the fruit quality that you get. And also when you don't add sulfur, you're going to really smooth out your tannins a lot earlier in the process of uh, red wine making. So you don't have to wait that five to 10 years for the tannins to mellow out without the added sulfites. Because sulfur, sulfites are antioxidants and really for the tannins to mellow out in a red wine, you need a little bit of oxygen for that to happen, for the tannins to polymerize over time is the scientific kind of uh, lingo, wine geek lingo behind it. Basically, you get a much smoother wine as your red wine ages so if we don't add sulfur during that, that winemaking process or even right before bottling, we can really encourage that. This is a question, and hopefully this is, doesn't make me sound stupid, but I hear often, mostly from my women friends who have drank too much red wine at one point in their time, is they don't drink red wine anymore because they're allergic to the sulfur or the sulfites in it. So if you have a non-sulfur wine that wasn't added, are they technically allergic to it? Well, that's a really good question, and I I get that comment a lot that folks don't get headaches and feel a lot better when they drink my red wines than ordinary or other red wines that have sulfites. 
not a lot of people are statistically allergic to sulfites themselves. But what scientists have found through studies is that red wine is pretty can be pretty high in histamines and other biogenes, and that's the main thing that you're reacting to. And sulfites make those histamines worse. That's why you get that reaction to red wine more than white wine, because I would bet that 98% of all the white wine you've ever had also had sulfites, but you don't get that reaction. And white wines don't have histamines, don't have tannins, don't have some of the other things that are causing that reaction. So it's really the sulfites with the histamines and other biogenes that are causing that is what I think. And I think it's borne out because I, I get a lot, a lot of comments on that. So I love the answer. I love the explanation. And now all you that say you're allergic to sulfites, that may not be the case. So thank you for explaining that and answering it. And it, I know I kind of hit you yeah. out of left field with that one. And to be fair for all the listeners out there, I mean, there definitely there's one or two or three percent of folks that definitely are allergic to sulfites on their own. So don't want to discount that. That's important. Perfect. Good disclaimer there yep. on the end. Yep. Now let's shift vermouth because it is a wine product and many people don't know what it is. And you dropped us off a bottle well, the first time. And Sammy and I dove into it and it was pretty darn good. Thank you. Yeah, it's just so much fun. So we start off with a rosé of Pinot Noir and we add sugar and a brandy that is made from Pinot Noir as well. And you put all of that into a tank and then you start infusing it with botanicals. And we use 17 different botanicals on the rosé vermouth. That'll be coming out soon. Hopefully by the time this podcast airs, we'll have it actually in bottle. But it's, uh, yeah, the botanicals, you know, they're floral, they're bitter, they're fruit-driven, they're spice-driven. There's just the whole gamut. And so you have all those flavors just kind of commingling and playing around. So when it comes to vermouth, the million-dollar question, do you have to mix it in a cocktail, or can you drink it by itself? You can do both. That's the great thing. It's really its own low ABV, low-alcohol cocktail because it's got wine, it's got the botanicals, it's got the sugar, and it's got the brandy. But yeah, I'm not a cocktail guy, but a lot of folks just love this in cocktails. Negroni... Sunbreak Negroni, Sunbreak Chrysanthemum, you name it. It's just, uh, it's delicious. Or just, you know, with a twist of lime on the rocks with a little bit of seltzer water too is just beautiful. Sounds really refreshing for summer specifically. And like all those mm -hmm. names were so pretty. You definitely need to open a tasting room and then you can have your custom cocktails with whatever you just said because I can't. That sounds great. It does sound great. So Let's you just let it. me know when you've done it and then, you know, we'll go from there. Okay. Wine and vermouth are not the only things that you make. And this is where the uniqueness really steps in. You make cider. We do. So when we bought our property, which we named Sunbreak, we had four apple trees and then huge apple trees. And they were producing 2,000 pounds plus of apples every year. And so while I was taking winemaking classes and interning at different wineries, I had all these apples and I started making cider. And really what, what I thought I was doing was just practicing like sparkling wine technique on apple juice. 
And one thing led to the next, and I really started to look into traditional cider-making styles. And we launched uh, the Sunbreak Cider about four years ago, and it's been a lot of fun to really discover heritage, what I call heritage-style ciders, traditional ciders that are bottle-conditioned, they're dry, so they're very wine-like. We still use some of the apples, you know, from our property and from our neighbor's trees that are more dessert apples, but then we supplement that with orchard cider apples that we get from Kiger Island in the Corvallis area and then in the Jefferson area, another great orchard there. And they're really focused on producing these amazing apple varietals that were developed in in Normandy and England and New England that are specifically made for traditional cider. So these are apples that have can have a lot of tannin or they can have a lot of sugar so it gets your alcohol level up to like an appropriate level, have a lot of acidity, have a ton of color and flavor. And it's just been fun to be part of a small movement to kind of reintroduce the U.S. drinker and all of us to what used to be in the United States, the most popular alcoholic beverage two centuries ago, and maybe even towards the beginning of the 20th century too. So it was it was the traditional drink uh, for Thanksgiving and every occasion. And every small town, every small farmhouse made their own cider. So we're trying to bring that back. A lot of what we would call modern ciders that are on the market these days are simply uh, a lot of really cheap dessert fruit juice that you can get from Eastern Oregon and Eastern uh, Washington. And when you make a cider from an apple that's really designed to be a, uh, an eating apple, a dessert apple, you know, there's there's just not much of a flavor profile there. And so that's why you see a lot of ciders, modern ciders on the market have added flavors. I'll have hibiscus and ginger and chai tea and everything, you name it. There's every flavor in the world, uh, which is great. And that's a big part of the cider market. It's a good intro and they tend to be sweet as well. But since I think the last 10 years now, there's been a kind of a strong movement to reintroduce uh, and to, to, to really heighten uh, some of these more traditional styles. And certainly, you know, in New England, this has been going on for a long time, but for the rest of the U.S., we're starting to catch up to what New England has been perhaps doing uh, nonstop. I remember when we originally met and we were talking about all this and store, my pre-show prep, I guess. We, we'd sit down, talk, we drink, you know, whatever. You had specifically told me that your cider-making technique is pretty much a wine technique which is unique. Yeah, that's right. So it's basically a champagne method. We just don't go through the extra step and cost of disgorging. So there's a little bit of, you know, that bottle conditioning. So you get that yeast that in the bottle with the sugars, the natural sugars uh, at the very end of the process that creates the carbonation in the bottle. And we're just going to leave that yeast uh, sediment at the bottom of the bottle. Uh, it'll settle out nicely but it would just be kind of cost prohibitive for a cider to do all the disgorging and all the riddling and the disgorging and everything you would do on a champagne. But just like champagne and sparkling wine, it's really similar in terms of the aging and the longer it stays on the lees, on those, on those yeast cells, just the softer it becomes and it just adds more complexity. 
And I'm finally at the stage now where I'm making enough that I don't have to sell all of it in the first nine months. And so, so now if you, if you go out and buy some Sunbreak Cider, it will be about, uh, well, yeah, it'll be more than a year old. So it's just going to be, you know, better than it was last year. And that's what we kind of hope to continue is to have these ciders have a little bit of bottle age as well and be very vintage uh, driven and orchard driven. So, you know, we have four different brands of cider. We have one called Gravenstein Gold and the Gravenstein Apple is uh, part of that that neighborhood thing where we have some Gravenstein trees and then we add 15 different other varietals to that. We have one called Liberty Red, so the Liberty Apple with uh, an additional eight or nine apples, uh, cider apples. Um, One called Dabinet, which is a single varietal, which is a really great apple on its own. And Idle Acres Perfection, which is 100% heritage fruit in, in that one. And they're all different, but the added thing too is they're all going to vary for every vintage because I'm working with orchards. The apple yields change every year, so there's no formula. It's a lot like winemaking and champagne in that sense that the vintage is going to dictate the flavor profile every year. It was fun when uh, Sammy and I opened it, I don't know, a couple months ago, we opened the Gravenstein bottle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we had to learn how to pronounce that the right mm-hmm. way, but which was actually comical for me. One of my very favorite apples. I love Gravenstein apples, but I was expecting, you know, some of the ciders that you've, you know, I've tasted on the market that have all the flavors and whatever else. And it was, it was just fun. It was true to the apple. It did have that winemaking, you know, kind of nuance to it. And it was really just a really pleasant surprise. And the color was awesome. The one we opened this week was dark golden, you know, colors and it seemed to me it was a little bit softer. I don't even know what we opened, but it was a little bit softer, like, you know, as far as the texture, whereas the Gravenstein was a little bit more maybe acidic. I don't know. A little know. brighter style. Yeah. 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 So yeah. delicious. Thank so, you. Just think about it this way. It's a lot cheaper than sparkling wine and champagne, right? So, And it's a great alternative for someone who doesn't like beer and who doesn't like wine. Yeah. Which, I mean, I see that all the time. You know, I get, you know, people are like, ah, I don't like beer. You know, I can't drink, you know, whatever. And I'm like, this is a great alternative. It's not high in sugar. And, you know, it's just, you know, I don't think you get the headache the next day if you overindulge just a little bit. So Yep. And our ciders are sulfite-free as well, or no no added sulfites in the ciders, which is a little tricky to do, but but we're we're hanging in there. So we can kind of get a little bit of wild yeast flavors in there as well. That's where we're trying to encourage that complexity in the ciders. It's a lot of fun. The most important part here is where do we find all your wines, the cider? The vermouth is not on the market yet, so don't call and ask because it's not quite there. Soon, soon. Soon, coming soon. So where do we find everything? Well, we have a a great website and you can reach me if you're in the Willamette Valley. I do deliveries and then I've got a wonderful distributor in Oregon. We're mostly in Oregon. And then on our website, we ship to, I think, 38 different states in the U.S. Sunbreakwineinsider.com. That's pretty easy and straightforward. And we always... And we have a great wine club. So, And then there's that. (laughs) (laughs) We always end every session with the question of the day. And you'll each get different questions, Sam, so you don't get to cheat on this one. 
with you being such a foodie and have such a long history with wine, what is your best pairing that you've ever had? And what is the weirdest or worst pairing you've ever had? Oh my gosh. Best pairing. Oh, I would have to say that it was an aged champagne with a crab quiche that I still remember to this day. And it was, you know, you just get those lovely interplays of the the richness of that a quiche can provide with the creaminess of the crab and an aged champagne, which is just so light on its feet and delicate, but still has the acidity to really make that work. The weirdest pairing, I, I'd have to say since since we have a lot of Pinot Noir at home, we, we've been trying Pinot Noir with everything. And I was just so shocked the other day to try one of our Pinot Noirs with some Thai food, nice and spicy. And it was, it was great. It it didn't seem to make sense, but it just all worked. And I think it was just the fact that there was enough richness in the dish that it was a good pairing, but it's not something I would have expected because of the spice. So it just goes to show that You know, with food and wine pairings, you don't have to follow rules. You know, if you like the wine, just try it with different things and and you're going to surprise yourself and you're going to find some wonderful pairings. I would second that. Food and wine is just a magical pairing that, yeah, I I didn't realize how magical it was until we really started doing this and drinking wines. And with a Thai dish, you would expect probably like an acidic white wine is what, you know, you probably would have put with that. So a Pinot Or something sweeter, yeah. like a Verts demeanor and Riesling would be the traditional, which is what I've always done. So yeah, yeah. we should do a whole show on just food pairings and oh, wine and food I'm pairings. So, Let's do that. so interested and Get down some for that. some here with oh, some yeah. wine liquors. Yep. That would be so much fun. Yep. Nope. I Well, I'll note that and we'll uh, talk I about that. I want to be invited. Okay. So. Okay. Deal. Deal. It was your idea. You get invited. Well, the, the, the key thing is just for the listeners out there, think about the fact that with food and wine pairings, you can have contrasting pairings that where the wine and the food are contrasting and somehow it's really interesting to you or they can be complementary. They can be along the same lines, like with a rich Chardonnay with a rich dish or something. And but they both seem to work. So, so what is it that you prefer? And it just depends on your mood. And like I said, there doesn't, you know, you don't have to have rule books and all these things that you need to memorize. You can really play around with those two concepts. That is a great way to end your segment. And thank you for being here and sharing everything that you do and making the second, actually third trip back to McMinnville because you came out here to see me the first time too, which I appreciated. So Third time's a charm. Thank you. Always. Yep. We will be back in touch and I can't wait to see the vermouth rolled out. All right. Hold tight, everybody, because we are coming back with Sam Parra with Parra Wine Co. So get off the sofa, out of your car, wherever you're at, refill whatever you're drinking and we'll be right back. I hope you refilled your glass because mine is filled with this beautiful red wine that I'm not going to spoil and tell you what it is. Sam Parra with Parra Wine Company or Co. has joined us today again. And I see Sam a lot, which is he's, I don't know, I like you, Sam. So I'm glad I see you often. So welcome and thank you for coming back again. And I know your story, you didn't 
start in the the wine industry immediately. You've kind of had this back lineage of family and everything else. And so I want to let it kind of roll out as you tell it. Yeah, thank you. No, I'm glad you're enjoying the Tempranillo on Tempranillo Day. And how, you know, lovely is that? Yeah, and that I'm here interviewing in the same show with my good friend, David. So, um, yeah, three generations in the wine business going back to Napa Valley. My grandfather came through the U.S. government program known as Bracero, where you actually uh, get work visas fairly easy. He started to work in Texas, clearing land for returning soldiers of World War II, and then spent a year in Coachella. And before you know it, he went to Napa Valley. My grandmother had a family already working in Napa Valley, and he landed a job with Behringer, where he spent 37 years. And then uh, it trickled down to the next generation. My my grandparents had a small family of 10 children. Wow. Yeah. And you have your you have your yeah. own labor force when you have yeah, that yeah, many exactly. kids. Yeah. So two of my aunts and three of my uncles um, were in the wine industry. And then it trickles down to my generation where zero of the grandchildren work on the vineyard side. And you have five of us in production and everything ranging from even a cousin of mine in the past, he was an IT for uh, Boisette, the big French producer that oh. has that owns now Buena Vista. He owns Deloche, Raymond. Got so, it. So he was he was IT for that company. So it, you know, Napa Valley provides um, many many different jobs. So let's go back to Napa Valley because you had told me that you had um, or your grandfather had come up in the eighties, correct, or earlier than that. Okay, you tell me, because I know Napa Valley then is not what Napa Valley is now. And people need to understand that because it was not this mecca of wine and all this, you know, intricacy and high-end, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. So where did your grandfather come into this? And, you know, what did he think? And what does he think now that it's really, really changed? Back then, he came to work for Napa Valley to improve the life of his family. And because he had... uh, family from my grandmother's side already working there that referred him to work. So back then, it was more of a matter of putting food on the table for a family. As the generations went by, he always encouraged us to attend um, higher learning or a trade school because for himself, he was good at agriculture, but it definitely took a toll on his body as far as surgeries, having knees and, and hips. So it was, it was just great to have that advice from my grandfather. Um, may he rest in peace. And it's he, very good advice. Uh, yeah. I can attest to that being a farmer's kid and watching the trials and tribulations of my dad, my grandfather, you know, and everybody. So total kudos to the hard work that goes into that. Yeah. Did you always have a love for the wine industry or wine? Was it part of a daily life other than outside of the agriculture? Yeah, so um, my family began to share wine when I was in high school in in portions that are controlled and responsible, where one of the very first food pairings I fell in love with was ceviche with a Sauvignon Blanc from Frog's Leap. That sounds delicious. Special little winery in Rutherford. And then a matter of a, a big old carne asada taco with my favorite region in Napa Valley is Howe Mountain. And it was over the Cabernet. And my uncles explained the difference and said, 
Yeah, you definitely do not want the hot salsa and the jalapenos. That is not going to pair well with with the wine. But here, try this really mild pico de gallo because you want to showcase more of the red meat with the Cabernet Sauvignon. So, And that's interesting because that is not a, I guess, normal pairing because a lot of times you see, you know, a lot of French food or a lot of things like that. So to go with more of like a Latino flavor with the spices and the jalapenos and whatever else, you say it's so much prettier than I do. It's interesting to hear that because people don't probably realize they can pair wine with, well, you can pair with anything, but especially like, you know, spicy foods like that. Yeah. I'm just glad that it wasn't seen as a taboo. We're definitely living, you know, the the European lifestyle as when David mentioned that when you celebrate and make memories with family and and definitely the long meals that come into play and the wines that will forever live in memories with you. But I'm just glad that it was not a taboo back then because out of high school, I worked at a gourmet grocery store. But then a friend of mine returned from Santa Barbara from college, and she happens to be the daughter of a gentleman named Gary Andrus, which was the founder of Pine Ridge Winery in the Stagley District. And the previous year, they were one of the hosts of the Napa Valley Wine Auction. So they actually ramped up and they got really busy for their special events department. And she just asked me if if I had interest to work in special events and see what they have to offer at the winery. And myself, not wanting to leave a full-time job, I, I began to work part-time at age 20. And I was actually attending Napa Valley College part-time, by the way. I already had a full-time job because uh, college at that time was just not really a p- priority for me. And so I began to work where, you know, you cannot ring up wine cells or pour wine, but you can sure, you know, clean stemware, set up tables, pack wine to ship. But six months later, I turned 21 and sure thing, I threw away the fake ID. Nice and work. I left, and I left my, my gourmet grocery store which uh, is a great family that owned that store since the 40s, by the way. I love stuff like that. In St. Alina. But I went to go work full-time at Pine Ridge Winery. And that's actually what brought me to Oregon in 1999. Because back then, the open houses were very special, being that twice a year where the tradition continues, how it's a Memorial Day weekend and Thanksgiving weekend. So he would fly us from Angwin. It's in Napa County right into McMinnville in the small plains of Cessnas. And then we would drive for the Thanksgiving open house. So that was pretty special at age 21 to be brought up to Oregon to assist as event staff support at Archery Summit Winery. When I first got to visit out here in 1999, by the way. I don't even know where to go with that because it's, I mean, there's so many directions I can go because I just think it's such a cool way for you to have entered into the wine industry and meeting Gary Andrus, who is a legend, um, both in California and in Oregon, and he has since passed away. But he's also left this legacy of of wine behind it. So to have him sort of as a mentor, along with your grandfather and uncles and everybody else, I mean, that's pretty special. Yeah, yeah. It, it, great memories. Um, again, coming out to Oregon, even after I left uh, working at Pine Ridge Winery, I would still come visit out of here every two or three years. I, I always loved the area and saw myself back then even moving here. Uh, our move happened in the summer of 2016. 
from Sonoma County. So it's really not that long ago. I mean, I was, I, I guess I thought you had been up here longer, but I, I don't know. Maybe I, I think I met you shortly after you got up here. It, we've known each other for quite a few years, so I didn't know that. So, you know, these are all fun, fun facts for me. When you moved up here, did you go straight into the wine industry or did you have a kind of a path that, you know, stepped sideways before you got there? Uh, I did. I actually moved four months ahead of time from my wife. I got a job as wine club associate at Archery Summit Winery. And then eventually I got promoted to trade liaison. So hosting a lot of wine buyers, restaurant owners, sommeliers, wine bloggers, because having the knowledge of, of basically working vineyards for, for pocket money and in high school, and then making wine with family throughout my life in general. Also just answering a lot of the technical questions that a lot of sommeliers get to the really nuts and bolts and geeky questions through my dubset wine studies. This all makes so much sense because you are everywhere with your wine, wine shops, restaurants, I mean, pitching it, you know, everywhere. And you've been so successful the last couple of years. I've watched you grow from being brand new into really kind of being all over the place because you just came back from Southern Oregon and it sounds like it was a pretty successful trip. And so this is all coming together and making so much sense of how you plan this and how it has kind of blossomed into this beautiful, you know, journey. Yeah, I definitely came to Oregon with plans to start my company, you know, working full time at Archery Summit. It was great working there, but I did have a competitive clause and I began to make wine. And when it came down to sell the wine, I left my employer to go work uh, at another winery for uh, only four days a week. And they gave me freedom to start my company, which, yeah, it's quickly growing. I didn't come from California with, with gold coins in, in my back pocket. I would only share one day off with my wife. And then the other day, I seeked out work at wineries. And at one point, I was working for 10 different wineries and, and bottling. So, yeah, definitely talk about the blood, sweat, and tears. David can attest to that. Definitely a lot of sweating going on on the Wine Country Workout on bottling gigs. And definitely the tears were rolling down the eyes. I mean, with some friends, they helped me out to bottle my first commercial wines because they knew just how I worked my tail off to just save the money and stay focused and start my brand and definitely looking for the future. You mentioned something when we were kind of getting set up about how you funded your basically wine takeoff. And I think there's a misnomer with, you know, people on the outside looking into the wine industry that everybody comes in with money and lots of it. And I mean, we've already talked about how you've worked your tail off, but specifically tell us how you funded your startup with your wine company. I, as I mentioned on my days off to go bottle and then also to put money away of tip money in general. And you eventually start to see that savings account grow and you can finally make your move and make sure to glance over at your business plan. And the main thing with wine is you have to be financially ready, but also when the product is out, the more important thing, you got to push your product. It's not all about making wine because unless you're going to drink it all yourself, you got to sell the stuff and you got to have a plan on how to do that. Yeah. Unless you're going to be happy to pay to store your wine at all these great companies that want to store it for you. I mean, that's that's a great option to just have it there and sell verticals down 
the road if you eventually if you open a brick and mortar. But it's just, it's just a matter of being motivated by others that you meet out here. You know, again, here's um here's David next to us. I mean, look at his great shape at 50 years young here. And then I was bottling with guys that are, you know, in high school seeking summer employment or interns that stayed around at 21 years of age. And then, you know, they're they're glancing over at me and maybe maybe the hats, you know, uh hiding the gray hair and the bald spots, but they figured out, oh wow, this guy's in his 40s and you just meet a lot of great people of all, all, you know, of different walks of life. I mean, David coming from his HP background and then transitioning to winemaking, that definitely inspired me. Meeting him at Vincent Wine Co. or meeting, you know, others at Lemelson or Brooks. It's just a great community that we live in where other winemakers spread the word out for you that you're seeking work. And again, we live in a community where we help each other out. It's so true. And we could expand and talk about this for so long because it's just, it's an amazing what the wine industry does for each other and with each other. So I want to um, stop there because we haven't even started talking about the wine yet and we need to talk about the wine. So mm-hmm. refill time, everybody refill, and then we will be right back. Here we go. Last segment, we're going to talk about wine. We're going to talk about some other things that you do. And we are going to talk about that shirt that you have on because I might be kind of a dummy maybe, but I'm not really sure what the middle word technically means. So let's talk about your your shirt. And we will take pictures of both David's 50-year-old physique mm-hmm. in and his Sam shirt. So Yeah, so the Yes Way Rosé, it's G-U-E-Y. That's the part I'm confused on. Yeah, it sounds exactly the same as W-A-Y, as in when you say yes, way, rosé. It sounds the same. It's yes, way, rosé. So is it a different language? Yeah, so this word in Spanish, it's a slang word where when the Spaniards were in Mexico, they would have to whip the slow cows behind the pack, and they began to call them the slow cows were the ways. Interesting. It got changed to slang where you can just give it a thumbs up and be like, orale way. It means right on. Got it. Or you can say pinche way. And it's like meaning you mother beep. Yeah. <laughs> got it. So it so can actually. We can have, go both ways with it. It can have two different meanings. But for mine is the English saying of yes way rosé, but give it that Spanish flavor. Uh, give it, give it that inside a wine, Latino wine lover humor. Mm-hmm. And we have so. had two different language lessons today in both Spanish and French. So you're welcome, everybody. We've made everybody smarter today. Gracias. Yes. Okay, let's and talk. I, I, and I'm sorry, really fast. I shouldn't say gracias way because usually refer to a, a man. By the way. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not that. So sorry. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I said gracias, Heidi. Yeah, th- there we go. That w- that works. I I even know what that means. Let's talk wine. We have two bottles of red. Um, you have other things that you make. I think we drank the last bottle on earth of the Albarino a couple months ago, and it was delicious. So let's talk wine, what your flair is, what your style is. I am drinking a Syrah that is amazing. Thank you, Sam, by the way. So show's yours. Uh, thank you. So 
myself being a brand, a new brand, I would not make myself any justice by competing with 600 plus brands out here making Pinot Noir. So um, my wine that definitely got a lot of press was 2019 Tempranillo of Zenith Vineyard, located in the Eola Amity Hills. He plants very little of this Spanish variety, which thrives in warmer areas such as Southern Oregon, Texas, California, Arizona, etc. But this is a cool climate Tempranillo where you're going to have lower percentage of alcohol. It's going to be more for Gamay or Pinot Noir lovers. And then, yes, I source Albariño, which you tend to find, obviously, a lot of Pinot Gris and also uh, great Chardonnays and Riesling dominating, you know, the love for consumers out there that enjoy white wine or the market. But I, I managed to get a contract of a grower outside of Turner for the Albariño. And then my Syrah, uh, Jeff Havlin, is on Perrydale Road in the Van Duzer Corridor. So for my wines, I make them uh, European style. I cannot afford new barrels right now. So I have a lot of French neutral barrels. My wines are actually bottled fairly young. So I want them to be food friendly right from the release. I do recommend actually to enjoy my wines more with, with a meal. I will get to the point where I'm going to make wines that you can enjoy more sipping standalone wines. Um, I actually just got back from Southern Oregon where I'm looking to source or collaborate with a co-op to make a GSM. And I love Cabernet Franc, by the way. What is GSM? Grenache Syrah Morvedre. So it's, um, I spent a long summer in 2002 in a village of Rostow. It's in the Cote de Rhone, and you have very famous areas such as Gigondas and uh, Vaqueras, Chateauneuf de Pop, of course. And then you have beautiful cities nearby like Orange and Avignon. So um, I felt right at home. Again, you know, growing up in Napa with having the big family parties where, again, the wine was not a taboo. And with all the great meals, except, you know, like in, in Europe, they have a, a bit more local French music scene or some symphony. You know, in Napa, we were playing more of the banda recodo. You might have heard the banda bands in general or, or traditional Mexican music playing at these family gatherings. But I felt right at home in, in southern France more again because of the celebration that happens where the, where the gathering, how we say in Spanish, a convivio, is uh, having these dinners that start at seven and eight and definitely got familiar with the aperitifs and having uh, really good uzos. It was quite an experience. It, it was a very lengthy stay there. And so that is what the GSM is. And that was a big influence for me the first time traveling to Europe that time. When you say European style, because you just said it a, a few minutes ago, that that's your style. Is that kind of where you've gotten that that styling from? Is your, you know, and what exactly does that mean? What's what's yeah. the definition of that? No, of course. So you're actually going to have lower alcohol percentage. And in Europe, too, they're actually um, using a lot of concrete. What's become really popular here when you see the egg shape or the cubes, that is no stranger to Europe at all where the lineage even goes back where they got the influence from the Middle East 
But for myself, again, for, for European style, lower alcohol percentage, meaning that the fruit is not overwhelming the wine nor the alcohol. And myself just using neutral French oak barrels. And, and that is more of not of a choice of I cannot afford the new, the new barrels right now in general at the point that I'm at with my company. I would love to eventually. So yeah, right now, my wines are European style because they're also released very young. In Europe, you see a lot of wines. I mean, you're tasting right now 2020 vintage on these two reds right now. Which is interesting because 2020 was the notorious vintage of the wildfire smoke. And neither of these wines have a hint of smoke on them at right. all. And there was not a lot of red wine made in 2020 because, I mean, Pinot is very tender and very, you know, um, influenced, I guess, maybe is the right word. This was a beautiful surprise. We have not talked about the Syrah yet, which is a, a cool weather Syrah as well. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to let you talk about it because it is beautiful. It is bright. It is, it's delicious. No, thanks. I want to talk about how that connection came about was I've tried Syrah from Van Duzer Winery. And I've also tried Syrah from Amelie Roberts. They both happen to be in Dallas, Oregon. So my wife and myself, we, we bought our house in November of 2017. And a year later, when I was producing wine, I happened to just Google Dallas, Oregon and space and Syrah. And I happened to be going into the fourth page in and there was a job posting at OSU from Havlin Vineyard providing an internship in the vineyard. And it, and it said the varieties. And one of them that listed first was Syrah. So I clicked uh, the OSU link. It did not have his email, but it had his phone number. And so I called. Okay. This is in early December 2019. He returned my call in early 2020. Him and his wife got out just in time on the last flights leaving China. Wow. Talk, talk about the, the timing of things, right? No kidding. Uh, his wife is from China, by the way. But the reason he called me is um, not, not just the short voicemail getting to the point, but also my area code because he worked in the Bay Area. So he called me back and we actually had quite a long conversation. We ended up having mutual friends in Sonoma. Because I told them how I was born in Napa, but spent a lot of years from Sonoma State. I spent a lot of years living in Sonoma County. So he told me the story of how, giving me the list of his clients, and they're all really well-known producers in the area. And he did speak about the producer purchasing mainly most of the Syrah and said, yeah, you know, that Syrah is pretty locked in, but this is a great conversation. I'll get a hold of you down the road for Chardonnay and Pinot, because we just spoke about other varietals away from the unique ones that he grows there, okay? Well, months later, of course, what's taking place with COVID and many restaurants closing down, that producer, that urban winery in Portland, they happen to make a lot of keg wine from Havilland Vineyard Chardonnay and Syrah. And of course, with all the restaurants closing down, they were not moving those kegs at all. So they were losing money, revenue coming in. And that producer did reach out to Havlin right away and told them of what he had to scale back from buying from Havlin. And from my conversation with him, 
he kept me in mind because he happens to sell grapes to John Groschau, where I lease space in Amity to make my wine. He happens to sell Pinot Gris and Chardonnay for many years to John Groschau. So because of our previous conversation, the location where I'm at, he called me back and said, I want to give somebody new a shot. You have a ton of Syrah. That is awesome. Like, people are good. There are so many good people out in the world. And when you are a good person, you have these great conversations and the door opens just a little bit and you kind of stick your toe in it and move forward. Beautiful things happen. So congratulations. No, I'm excited. Uh, Next year, I'm going to be purchasing Trousseau Noir from him, by the way. What is that? Trousseau Noir, it can be in a style of uh, light as a Pinot Noir, but tastes very different. And in Spain, they call it Bastardo. And Jeff Havlin happens to call it Bastardo. And he also happened to travel through Portugal. And as we got to know each other more, we, we both have traveled to Portugal. And he is crazy enough to plant Tinta Cow. And I'm even crazier to buy those grapes from him of something that is not properly ripening right now, Heidi, here in the valley. I managed to purchase Tempranillo. And Tinta Cow from Havlin in 2020 as well, by the way. You need to spell that because I hear Denta Cow. No, yeah, totally. It's uh, <laughs> T-I-N-T-A-C-A-O. Tinta Cow. C-A-O. It's a varietal traditionally uh, planted in the Doro Valley to make port, by the way. And it's grown right in Dallas, Oregon. And as far as I know, he is the only one that has it. In 2019, a quick story, uh, Bryn Mawr happened to purchase the Tinta Cow with Tempranillo uh, because they buy quite a bit of Chardonnay from Jeff Havlin and they made a wine called Joven, which is young, but is really referring to a Beaujolais style of a release of a wine. Something that is going to be released at the same exact vintage as the same exact year, I'm sorry, as when the wine is made, by the way. Hmm. You're full of all kinds of interesting information and Things that I've never heard of, and um, I will never forget Denta Cow now. So, Denta Cow. Yes, I spell yeah. it differently in my head, but you know, it, it all comes <laughs> out kind of the same in the wash. Yeah. Uh, any other varietals and wines that you're making? Because I think you made a rosé. Uh, yeah, so rosé dominated uh, mainly by Tempranillo and then Pinot Noir in. And then I have a dessert wine of Riesling, Pinot Gris, and Gewürztraminer. And then also a Gamay Pinot Noir blend. And then last time when we were supposed to record, you tried my Syrah from the Rogue Valley. That's right. I did. Because yeah. it's a completely different Syrah than what we're drinking today. Hot climate yep, in hot general. Hot climate. So with my company, I am going to be making single vineyard wines from the great state of Oregon. I love it. So why just stay here where I love Syrahs that are grown out in Milton Freewater, the Walla Walla side of Oregon, what they call the rocks. That is the most interesting district, AVA, area, whatever. I mean, it looks like a riverbed with grapes on it. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful it, area. Yeah, it's super cool. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, those are the plans in general. Just make wines throughout the state of Oregon, what grows best in certain areas. But again, my success has been connecting with these growers where they have varietals that are not as common around here. Yeah, and I I love things that are are different, and it just brings a lot more interest and color to the wine industry in general, because there is a lot of Pinot and a lot of Chardonnay, and so it's nice having a variety, you know, when you're Pinot out or you just want something different. 
I want to give a quick, I don't know if shout out's the right word or just whatever, but you and I have been involved in an organization that is really an incredible nonprofit here locally. And I want to make sure that people know it exists, what it is, and then how they can connect. Oh, yeah. Which we've been involved with AIVOI. It's Asociación Hispana de la Industria de Vinocola en Oregón y Comunidad. So it's starting out with uh, Association of uh, Latino Professionals in the area here in Oregon. And the y comunidad is uh, the community. We're getting the community involved to help us out. So yeah, it's a nonprofit where we organize fundraisers and we're mentoring vineyard workers as we change to vineyard stewards. And it's a collaboration with their employers to attend a non-credit program. It's a pilot program through Shemekada which it's quickly growing as well because they now have an instructor that's bilingual uh, there. And now we have Linfield University involved with the dub set for the wine education. And I feel that we're going to have a lot more other government uh, programs stepping in because this is a great way as a retention program for the wine industry where there's... um so many folks that, like my grandfather, they were really gifted with agriculture, but once the grapes are delivered and they go into the production side, they have almost zero knowledge of what takes place after the grapes are delivered. And the big shift that you saw in Southern Oregon years ago with cannabis being legalized, where a lot of individuals that were gifted in the trade of agriculture, let's just say they were making between 14 and 18 an hour. And who is to blame where they went to go work for a cannabis company where they're easily making 35 to 40 an hour alone? Because again, they they know agriculture in general. So when you provide more education, more knowledge, and even for them, they're going to gain the passion of the wine culture and the industry, because they're going to know the industry as a whole. I feel for the workforce, it's going to be really hard to step away from the wine industry. Again, once they gain more passion for what they do or more passion for the product that they're enjoying as well, that they're, they're consuming. Yeah, I, I love it. It's a great organization. Find it on social media, in, you know, wherever. I mean, there's a lot of fundraisers around and some great auctions and all kinds of cool stuff that they're doing. Let's let everybody know where they can find your wine. You are everywhere. Like, literally, if you follow Sam on Instagram, he's constantly moving. Whether he's working his day job, he's bottling, he's slinging wine, whatever it is he's doing, you are constantly on the move. No, thanks. So um, either through the Instagram handle is Para Wineco, P-A-R-R-A Wine C-O, and then the same account on Facebook, by the way. And I'm definitely proactive on announcing new accounts that I have through just Oregon alone, by the way. I'm only sold in Oregon. And then uh, you're actually trying a very small production, Syrah, where this is not being placed at stores, by the way, or, or wine shops. This is sold directly to my mailing list members. So you can visit my website, 
parawineco.com and um, go to the menu and fill out the mailing list information. And I basically just follow up. If you provide me my number, I am not going to be shy. I actually first will give you a call and, you know, wait to hear back from you or follow up with an email. Don't worry, I will not show up knocking at your door if you provide me an address. That's, that's good. That might be a little creepy. That's more for the deliveries in general. But I forgot to mention, too, actually, the background for Para Wineco, uh, Parra in northern Portugal and northwest Spain, happens to mean it means vine. Where in many other Spanish speaking countries, it's Vina or Vinas. Mm -hmm. So my name is Sam Vine. See, it was meant to be on yeah. every front possible. Exactly. So you had no other choice than to go down this path. Right. Well, Sam, I usually ask a different question because we always finish with a question, but I'm really intrigued with the Mexican Latino side of food versus this French side of food. And question's going to be the same for you. Best pairing, worst pairing. It can be your wine. It could be someone else's wine. But I I love the contrast. Yeah, the, um, the, the best pairing was in 2002. Uh, a lot of the great chefs in France come out of a city of Lyon. That's when I tried uh, a Syrah from Northern Rhone area, where sometimes they actually co-ferment with some Viognier. In some parts, it's very minimal amount, by the way. It can be just between 1% and 3%. But I paired uh, that was paired with lamb at a very high-end restaurant, well-known in, in Lyon. It was um, our harvest party, basically from the winery that I worked at in, in the Cote de Rhone, where we went to this area of Lyon. There's so much great food that yeah. floats around the wine industry. I yeah. just, I'm so blown away, become even more of a food lover since I've started drinking wine a couple years ago. And mm -hmm. so I, I love it. So the most unique one was in Southern Portugal. There's a city called Faro, almost near to Spain. And Faro is where they, uh, the music of Fado, not to be confused with the city name, but Fado is uh, the music that you hear where they're stomping the feet, they're doing the clapping along. And it had a lot of influence from when the, the Moors resided in southern Portugal and southern Spain. Basically, it has a lot of influence from the Middle East. But what flows into Portugal from that side of Spain is uh, cherries, by the way. Hmm. Have you had cherries before? No. Just picture, um, have you ever had a white port? Yes, actually, well, I just, have. Just imagine a white port and somebody spilled a little red wine in it to give it a dark color, kind of brick to golden, but not quite red. Okay, I'm but with you. It's, it's basically, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's fortified and it was paired with snails. Oh, well, we need to hook you up with Greg and Melissa from Suzor because they're going to start a snail farm. So, you oh. know, we can start. <laughs> yes. We can uh, just I'm, start matching and mix, yes, you know, yeah. everybody together. This is good. Yeah, I have I'm a, a foodie, whole grand yeah. plan for all of you. I'm a foodie at heart. I mean, yeah. the most unique adventurous foods that I tried were definitely through Netherlands and France and Spain and Portugal. So, yeah, I would love to meet them. Yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty awesome people. So, Sam, thank you. David, thank you. This has been such a great kickoff for season five. I'm so appreciative to your patience with our, you know, our technical difficulties a few months back, but you guys are absolute true rock stars. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Let's go get some good food. Agreed. We're out of here. <laughs>